Uh, had the choir up here, the kids up here. I love being a part of a church that just values the kids and just loves them. But it's also a different Sunday in that we're in Hebrews 11. For the last 10 months, we've been marching our way, maybe sometimes crawling our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. And now we're jumping right to Hebrews 11. And that's our summer series. We're going to pick up the rest of Luke in the fall. We're not going to forget about it, but we're going to change it up a little bit. And so this summer, it's going to be all about faith. That's what this chapter really is about. And I figured, what better way to kick off our series on faith than to tell you guys about when I was a little kid and the first crisis of faith that I had. It was in the early 90s. There was a major craze sweeping the nation. Not Crystal Clear Pepsi, not Pogs, not Tamagotchi, if you guys remember any of these things. Some of you do. Sorry, college students. This one you had to see to understand. So let me see if I can show you guys. You guys remember these? Magic eyes. These are these 2D images where if you stare at it in just the right way, a 3D image will pop out, allegedly. And I'm sure that this analogy for faith has probably been used before by people far smarter than me and maybe in a time when magic eye was far more relevant. Um, but this was the first crisis of faith for me. This is what made me question the honesty of my parents. This is what made me question whether I was on like the Truman Show, the 1990s references just keep coming, and everyone was in on the gag except for me. Um, but for those of you guys who didn't have this experience growing up, Magic Eye went from nowhere to everywhere. There were entire stores in the mall dedicated to Magic Eye. And there was poster after poster, picture after picture, but it didn't matter. I tried them all. None of them worked. And I would stare for like 20 minutes. I was a dedicated little kid. And I'm going to let you in on my world here. So I'm staring at this thing. And as you do, inevitably, strangers come up to you and they're like, oh, man. You're not doing it right. Let me tell you what you got to do. Like, you got to relax your eyes. And so I'd sit there and I'd like relax my eyes a little bit. And then someone else would come up. No, no, no. You need to go cross-eyed. Look at it cross-eyed. And so I'd look at that thing cross-eyed and I'd keep staring and keep staring. The most humbling of all, though, is people would come up and they'd say, you got to put your nose against the glass. You guys remember this? So you put your nose right there on the glass and just stare and then slowly move away. And then they'd be like, not so fast, not so fast, go back. And you knew everyone was just cracking up behind you at the idiot who couldn't see the magic eye. By the way, guys, this is not a real magic eye, I don't think. I'm looking at some of you guys since they started and you're like doing, <laughs> doing the lazy eye, looking at it. I don't think it's real anyways. I can't see these. Is, is this real? Okay, I'm not sure if I buy this. Hang on. On the count of three, I want you guys to yell out what you see, just so I know what it is. Who can see it first off? Three. <laughs> three people. I don't know that I'm buying it. You guys are in cahoots over here. You're in on the joke. What is it? It's a cross? Are you kidding me? There's four quadrants with two things going deep and two things coming out. This is getting less and less believable. We got the cross. We've got something else. <laughs> well, for me, these things took an awful lot. You know what? You guys are going to look at the magic eye the whole day. I'm going to lose you guys. <laughs> Go ahead and close that thing down. <laughs> oh, 
for me, it took a ton of faith to believe that there really was something there, that Magic Eye wasn't a joke that the entire mall was playing on me. And today we're stepping into a book that was written to people who desperately needed to know that what they were believing in wasn't a joke, that what they were believing in was real. That's why the author of Hebrews is writing. He's writing to a group that are experiencing real persecution, a group that needs to know that what they're believing in is real and it's worth the fight and it's worth the suffering that's going on in their lives. And so he writes them this letter. Some of you might be in the kind of the same boat today, wondering, can I really put my faith in God? Is he really worthy of my trust? Is he real? And I don't want to waste any time. I just want to jump right in and see what the author of Hebrews would say to us. So why don't you guys stand for the reading of God's word. We stand for his words. You can sit for mine. I know I said Hebrews chapter 11, but we want to understand it in context. So let's back up just a little bit to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to skip around a little bit in there just because I'm not preaching chapter 10. I'm preaching chapter 11. But starting in verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. And then he talks about how they were insulted, how they were persecuted, how they had their property taken, but they did it all joyfully. And how? Why would they do it joyfully? Because verse 34, because you knew that you yourselves had a lasting and better possession. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. He's saying, don't give up now. Skip to verse 37. For in a little while, he who is coming will come back and he will not delay. AKA, he's saying, Jesus is coming back. Hang on just a little bit longer. Verse 39. For we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is what leads us right into our passage today. He's saying faith doesn't exist in a vacuum, and these people are hurting, but they can't forget where their hope comes from. So stay standing here, verse 1 of our passage. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You can grab a seat. And we stopped at verse 3, but next week we're going to be jumping into what many call the Hall of Faith. It lists off dozens of people that were commended for their faith. Abraham, Moses, David, a bunch more, Jephthah, Enoch. But before anyone starts to think like I did as a kid, that this is like the Hall of Fame, that this is a list of like the super Christians, this is a list of the heroes, I want you to notice that on this list are people who are murderers, people who are adulterers, people who are liars, prostitutes, a man who killed his own daughter, a man who was willing to do the same to his son, and don't lose me here. Don't start reading through your Bible trying to find out who it was that was the liar, who it was that uh, killed their own daughter. We'll get to that. This isn't I spy the biggest sinner right now. What this is, the reason why I quote off these failings, though, is I think it should be a big encouragement for us because the hall of faith here, if we have it, is a list of people, but really in your Bibles, there's only one hero. There's only one hero from cover to cover in the Bible, just the one, and that should give us encouragement because the hall of faith is filled with regular people, people who trusted after God, people who walked with him, but people who made mistakes. They weren't perfect, but their hope and their trust was in the one who was perfect. 
And so I don't know if you're here today thinking that you've messed up too bad in your life, that you've blown it too big, that somehow you've outrun God's grace. But this chapter has a beautiful call for you if that's you today. It shows us exactly who Jesus came to seek and save. He came to seek and save the ones who were lost, the people who had made mistakes. You can't outrun them. You can't outrun his grace. I don't know what you did this week. I don't know what you did last night. I don't know what you did 10 years ago. But you can't outrun his grace. This room is filled with broken people, people who have lied, people who have cheated, most of us, people who have made major mistakes, people who have spent time in jail. You can't outrun God's grace. You can't go too far. Even the so-called heroes of the faith blew it big time. This passage just illustrates there's just one hero in all of Scripture. And even the worst of us, when we put our faith in him, when we put our trust in him, we can be redeemed. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who have faith. So today, that's what we're going to look at. What is faith? We're going to look at three key elements of faith. Three key things that I would want you to know about faith. It's not exhaustive. This is a long chapter. We're going to cover more of them, but I want to give you guys three. But before I do, I want to give you guys a little bit of a definition of faith or really ask you guys, how would you define faith? Take 10 seconds right now. Just think to yourself, how would you define faith? You can think it quietly. I won't ask you to say them today. I spent a lot of time on the internet this week looking up how to define faith, looking up what people have thought about it over the years. And I wonder if this is similar to what you came up with or different. Start with one, a guy named Nietzsche, famous German philosopher. Many of you guys have probably heard of him. Maybe if you're like me for a long time, I confused him with Nietzsche, which is just the Japanese pronunciation of the same dude's name. Faith is not wanting to believe what's true, is what Nietzsche says. Faith is not wanting to believe what's true. In other words, faith is when you don't want to look at the evidence and you make a choice that says, I'm just going to ignore what's true. Is that right? Come to find out that's really popular today. That's one of the most popular definitions of faith that I could find anywhere. In fact, in America, the New York Times ran a little contest, and they often asked readers to do different things, and one of the things that they asked them to do in 2009 was to define the word faith. And so they had their writers write in, they had them post online, how would you define faith? And I read through them, and I want to give you guys some of the most common ones that kept coming up over and over again. Faith is a hunch that you bet your life on. Faith is an excuse for those who can't or won't think. Faith is sending a check to Bernie Madoff. If you guys remember, that's the Enron guy. This is 2009. That joke would have killed back then. <laughs> Faith, with regards to religion, asks you to leave your brains outside the door in order to believe anything the priests tell you. Most of the answers that people posted had that exact thought. That faith was some kind of like antiquated thing, some kind of relic from the past before we had answers. But now that we have answers, the only people that have faith are those who are too stubborn to recognize the truth. So is that what faith is? Is faith shutting your brain off? Let's look at this passage again. 
specifically verse 3. By faith, we understand. I looked up that word, understand, this week. And I don't often give you guys words in Greek or Hebrew. In fact, I think I've only done it once before, which is a little embarrassing considering I'd spent 30 hours wasted on studying Greek and Hebrew. But the word is noeo. And noeo means to grasp or comprehend something on the basis of careful, deliberate thought. So what this passage is saying is that by faith, we have carefully understood, we've reasoned this out, we've thought it through, we've looked at the evidence, and we've concluded. Faith is not an uneducated leap. Faith is not sticking our fingers in our ears, refusing to look at the evidence that's around us, which leads me to my first main point. First key element of faith that I want you guys to realize, faith is rational. Faith is rational. Many people today tell you that faith and reason are at odds. They're on separate sides, that they're warring against each other. The readers of the New York Times certainly felt that way. But careful readers of Scripture should never think this. God never pits faith and reason against each other. He doesn't. Read the Bible cover to cover. I challenge you and find anywhere where faith and reason are put against one another. Not above getting you guys to read the Bible by challenging, appealing to competitive sides. Faith and sight are set apart. Faith, we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, or verse 1 in our passage right now. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. God never tells his people to shut their brains off, though. So what do we understand through careful reasoning and thinking through? What is this passage? Look back at verse 3. By faith, we... I hate to do it. i got to pause again. Sorry, I want to get to it. But one more little thing here. This just struck me this week as I'm thinking about it. I can't not say it right now. Every other part, have you noticed in, in chapter 11 here that this is the only part that talks about us? Every other part in chapters, chapter 11, each paragraph starts with, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Joseph, by faith, Jephthah. It goes through all these people. But this verse says, by faith, we meaning every Christian should think this. Verse 3, what do we understand? We understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen was not made out of what was visible. This struck me this week. Really, it, it jumped out at me. Of all the things the writer of Hebrews could say here, by faith we believe that Jesus is the only way, the salvation of the world. By faith we believe that God is one in all things that are true. By faith, baldness is a sign of blessing, right? So many things he could say. By the way, that one was just for laughs, but I hope you believe it nonetheless. But instead, the author chooses creation. Out of all the truths in the Bible, he chooses creation, and I find that really interesting. I find that shockingly relevant for a book that lately people have been saying it's written over 2,000 years ago, and it's very irrelevant. That it takes something that is so under attack today. Something that people are fighting over right now, and it's still talking about it. I'm not talking about whether or not God created the world in seven literal days, or he did it over millions of years. I know people who believe both. What I'm talking about is the belief of whether or not God created the world at all. Many people think it was just an accident. 
Many college professors teach in their classes that this, everything you see was just an accident, and they give you all kinds of different theories and explanations on how that's possible. And I wish that we could look at all of them, but I want to take one. And the reason I'm only going to look at one is this passage is not really about creation. It's about faith. But I also want to show you that you don't have to shut your brains off to believe it. So I tried to choose one that we don't talk about very much. We haven't talked about here yet, I don't think. The multiple worlds hypothesis. You guys know this one? Some people shaking their heads, okay? I'm a little nervous because I think the rule is that when you're preaching, stay away from quantum mechanics always, (laughs) I think is the rule. So I'm going to be brief. If I lose you, just check back in in about a minute and a half when we talk about a poker game. Multiple worlds hypothesis goes like this. You guys ready? Yeah, you're stretching on? Okay. If the universe was formed by some kind of a fluctuation that created the, the Big Bang or a Big Bang, then is it not conceivable that that same fluctuation, that same process could have created multiple worlds, maybe even infinite worlds and universes, much like what we're seeing right now? And if there are infinite numbers of worlds, then statistically speaking, some of them would probably develop life. And even as improbable as it is, maybe we're on just such an earth that's evolved not just life, but complex ecosystems. That's space just the right distance away from the sun. It's a product of statistical chance because there's infinite opportunities. I'll give you kind of a silly example. Most people who are in quantum mechanics would probably hate that I'm going to dumb it down to this level, but trick shots, okay? Dude perfect, quantum mechanics, they just go together. You guys ever seen those videos where people make the most improbable, unrealistic basketball, golf, tennis shots in the world, and what you don't see is that they're doing it thousands and thousands of times where they're missing, but statistically speaking, one of them is going to hit. And what they're saying is, on a macro scale, a much more complex scale, if there's infinite opportunities for this stuff, then statistically speaking, this could happen. And whether or not this is debatably, logically possible, what I want to ask today is, is it probable? Not is it possible, but is it likely is even the case. And Alvin Plantinga, really smart guy, I've quoted him before, he wrote a book called Where the Conflict Really Lies. And if you're interested in faith and science and how they can work together and different things, you probably won't agree with everything in the book. I don't, but it's a great read. He writes this example about the multiple worlds hypothesis. And he says, imagine we're playing poker. All of us are playing a game of poker. Maybe not all of us. That'd be a huge game of poker. Uh, a, a group of us, we're playing poker, and you notice that as I'm dealing, every time that I'm dealing, I deal myself four aces and a wild card. Five aces, perfect, every single time. And this happens 10 times, 20 times, 30 times in a row. What are you going to think? Thank you for not giving like a Christian answer or not treating me like I'm a pastor, so I'm above cheating here. Um, I am. I don't cheat at games, I don't think. Even the good Christians in the room, you're going to say, I'm a cheater. You want to knock me out, right? Now, what if I, you know, hey, I recognize you're angry. I recognize how this looks, that it looks like I'm cheating. But listen, guys, this is really, there's a good reason for this. There are multiple universes 
infinite universes, in fact. In each universe, there's different things going on. And so statistically speaking, it's possible that in each universe, there's different cards being handed out. And we just happen to live in the universe where I keep getting four aces over and over and over again. Are you going to buy it? My guess is probably not I'm going to be kicked out of your poker game. Is it possible? Maybe. But is it probable? No. And if you won't take that answer for a card game where you're infinitely more likely to get four aces in a row than for the earth to be set at just the proper angle and the exact distance in its orbit and for the ecosystem to be so intricately involved where bees are needed to pollinate the flowers for them to reproduce all of these things fitting just perfectly. If you won't accept it for four aces, why would you accept it for the origins of something as beautiful and complex as this? Guys, faith is not ignorance. In fact, belief in the Christian doctrine of creation, I think, is far more reasoned, far more backed, far more evidenced than for some random cosmological of accident to have created all of this. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. I'm not saying that there's not still mystery in faith, guys. Faith isn't knowing everything. Look at verse 7. Noah didn't know everything. By faith, Noah, when warned of things not yet seen, he still acted in holy fear and he built the ark. By faith, Abraham, the next verse, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Faith isn't knowing everything, but it's certainly more than a hunch. Faith is rational. If you're taking notes, that was our first big point, the first key element of faith. But so many people stop there. We've got to move beyond just the fact that faith is rational. So the second main idea that we want to look at is faith is more than rational. To the Greeks who read Hebrews, I bet it was really challenging. And to the Western mindset, many of us in this room, I think it's challenging too. You see, the Western mindset is more comfortable with quotes from Nietzsche and quantum mechanics and things like that. Why? Because something like faith is all about this. It's all about the head. It's all about the brain. It's all about thoughts, rationality, and reason. I'm not saying faith doesn't involve those things, but one of the things that this chapter in Hebrews teaches us over and over and over again, we're going to see it as we go through this, is that true faith is always linked with obedience. True faith is always linked with obedience, with action, with steps. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel brought. Verse 7. By faith, Noah built. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham went. And as you read on, there's people who spoke in faith, left home in faith, embraced suffering in faith. But nowhere in this hall of faith is someone praised for simply intellectually accepting some theological truth. True faith is deeper than that. True faith and true belief changes us, and it causes us to act We know this instinctively. Let me give you a silly example. Many of you guys are going to go to the lake this summer, and you're going to bring little kids with you. And if your little kids are like my nieces and nephews and other relatives, at some point in their life, they will become terrified of the water, scared to death that if they go in, something bad is going to happen to them. And what do we do? 
as parents, as friends, as relatives, I think we instinctively know that if you can change that belief, you can change the behavior. And so you back up into the water and you kind of encourage them and you show them, trust me, nothing bad's going to happen. And you begin to splash around and show them that nothing bad happens to you when you go in the water. Because instinctively you know if you change their belief, you'll change their behavior. Our beliefs are always deeper than just our mind. Do you know what I mean when I ask, is your faith more than just intellectual and reasoned? You believe that God created the world and that he came to earth and he died. Great, even the demons believe that. But has that belief transferred into trust, love, admiration? Because it's more than, faith is more than just a belief of the mind, it's a belief of the heart. Let me give you another example. You can go around living your life today believing that the police are real, believing that they have real authority to arrest you, to put you in jail. But you can still choose to rebel. You can still choose to uh, go over the top and start engaging in criminal behaviors. Create a meth lab in your basement. Which, by the way, as I was voice commanding this to Surrey while I was driving and thinking of this example, she apparently thought it needed sanitizing and changed it to produce a math lab in your basement. (laughs) But you can do that. You can believe that the police are real, but do you think when they come knocking on your door and they're coming to arrest you, they're going to be any more lenient because you know that they have the authority to do that? Do you think the judge is going to throw out your case when you appear before him because you recognize that he or she has the authority to interpret the laws and to decide your punishment? you think God is going to be impressed that you know that he's truly the creator when everything in your life and your behavior communicates that you're the center of the earth, that you're the most important person, and that you're the one who's on the throne? No, even the demons believe that God's the creator and that he's in charge. They just choose not to live as if it's true. Is that you today? I had to ask myself this question. In terms of faith, first off, do I intellectually believe it? Do I believe that God is who he said he is, that he created the earth, that he came, that he died on my behalf, that he paid for all my sins, that he made a way when there was no other way? Do you? Do you believe that? Being a Christian means you don't have to shut off your brain. Far from it. If you don't believe that today and you want to, come talk with me. It's true. But then I had to ask myself another question too. Has that belief gone from my head to my heart? Has the penny dropped? Is my life consistent with my beliefs? The answer was a lot harder for that. I could look at it and say, I went to seminary, I became a pastor. So much of my life is centered around Christ. But if that was true, then why is there still so much of my life where I find myself not living for the creator, the one who made all of this, but living for myself trying to use the world to gain personal things or to accumulate stuff. True faith changes behavior. Now hear me on this. I'm not saying that we're saved by our obedience, okay? We're saved by the blood of of Christ only. But true faith, true belief in that, a true recognition that you need a Savior and that God came and paid that price will always change you. This is what the whole chapter is full of. People who walked by faith. People who took action 
Real faith is more than just rational. Number three, faith is patient. Third key element of faith, faith is patient. Verse number one, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, what we haven't achieved yet, what we don't see yet, and assurance about what we do not see. This is so countercultural. So the opposite of America right now. Today it's all about the present. It's all about what we can see. We don't care about the future. It's about this current moment. In fact, can anyone tell me what Pepsi's slogan is this summer? Does anyone know Pepsi's slogan? Mm, Anyone who works for Pepsi would be really sad right now, especially in their marketing team. Pepsi's slogan is, live for the now. That's their slogan, live for the now. Why is that their slogan? Because it sells. That's what people are buying today. People are buying up that it's all about this moment, this second, what's happening right here in front of my face. And they want you to associate that idea, that motto that you're buying with their product so that you buy that also. We're a generation. We're generations that don't like to be patient. We want to live for the now. And that works when money's coming in. That works when life seems to be going well. But what happens when you're like the, the, uh, the readers, the Hebrews here, and persecution's coming, and life isn't what it's supposed to be, and you recognize finally that I can't live for this world that's not enough? That's when the author of Hebrews would say real faith comes in. Verse 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. Faith is patience. When we run into problems is when we start to get rid of that and we have impatient faith. We try to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do right now. And sometimes it can sound really spiritual. Things like, God, you promised. God, I'm just claiming this promise right now. You need to do this for us. We're believing on this in faith. You have to do this right now. God, I did X, Y, Z. You owe me. God fulfills each and every one of his promises. It's always yes to any promise, but the when and the how, he's free to do as he chooses. Look at the last verse, verse 39. This is after all the people, chapter 11, after all the hall of faith, and it says these words. These, all the people, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, they were commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised. Let me give you an example. Look back at verse 8, too. An example even from one of these people's lives. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive his his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. How much of the promised land did Abe receive in his life? How much of the promised land did Abraham own in his life? The land that was promised to him. A small little plot for him to bury his wife on. That's what he did. So did God fail in his promise? No. For thousands of years, Abraham's descendants have had the land. They're there right now. They own it. It's just an issue of God always answers his promises with yes. He always fulfills them. But the when and how is up to him. And I feel like I meet so many people that get really disillusioned, really dejected when we get impatient with our faith. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Maybe a controversial one. Psalm 103 says, God forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. 
And I told you guys before about a relative who was sick and someone came in and they read this over him and said, you can't be sick or you're not a Christian. Does God heal diseases? Absolutely. Every day he heals diseases, whether it's through doctors or through means where people are looking at it saying, I have no idea how this happened. Miraculous. But there's other people who don't get healing in this life. Hebrews 11 is full of people who have died. People who aren't here anymore. Eventually, disease and death took them, and God will be eradicating death and disease. Revelation 21 and 22 tells us when he's going to do it completely. In the new heavens and the new earth, when he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more loss, no more death, because the old order of things is going to pass away. So we pray for healing, we have faith, but we also allow God to be free to do it in his time. And God always fulfills his promises. And maybe today you're struggling with that. Maybe even struggling to believe that he'll fulfill his promises at all, regardless of timing. Because you're just not seeing it. You're staring at that magic picture, and you're at all the different angles, but it doesn't seem like there's anything there. How do you know you can trust him? How do you know that God is worthy of your faith You look at who he is. You look at the one who made the picture. You look at who he is, and you look at what he's done in the past. This is what this chapter is all about. People who got to know God, they walked with him. They got to know his character, his heart, and they spent their lives chasing after him in response. But more than just this chapter, it's what Hebrews is all about in general. The book of Hebrews is dedicated to revealing who Jesus is and how he's unique and better than the rulers, better than the angels even, and how trustworthy he is. Look back at chapter 10 with me again, and then we're done. Chapter 10, verse 19. says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter his most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, The most holy place being the place where God dwelled. His presence was that we were separated from by a curtain that was torn when Jesus' body was torn on the cross. And since we have a great high priest who's over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you believe that today? In your mind, are you convinced that God is real, that he not only created the world, but that he came down and he died for the world as well, to make a way to where we could enter and approach him freely? Is your hope that when his body was torn, the curtain was torn too, and you were able to approach? Because if that isn't your hope, And I don't mean to sound harsh here, but you're not a Christian because that's fundamental to being a Christian. Yet just like faith is more than reason in the brain, being a Christian is more than just believing these truths intellectually. Even the demons believe that statement above, and they shudder. The question I have for you today is, Christians, do you believe these truths with your life? It's with this whole chapter. It's where it's going. Hebrews 11 throws us right into Hebrews 12. There were no chapter headings. And it says, Therefore, 
since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. When you see what Jesus has done for you, when your faith and hope are set in the faithfulness of a God who would not only create the world but would die for you too, it changes you. It should change you. It helps you to get into the water because you know that he's good and that you can put your hope and your faith in him. We're going to take communion today. And communion is open to anyone who believes that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for you. And I want to ask you today, do you believe it up here, but also do you believe it in your heart? Are there sins that have hindered you and ensnagled you, ensnared you, sorry, that you need to get rid of? Are there things that you need to put behind you to walk towards him in obedience? As Dave plays, I want you to think through those, and then the communion tables are open. Let's pray. God, we do believe. Believe that you're real, that you're listening right now, that you're here in this place. Like the centurion, help us with our unbelief. Help us with the areas where our faith is dwindling. Areas that we hold back from giving fully to you. Help us to recognize who you truly are and who we truly are by comparison. And help that to change us. Pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.